to. There's nothing magic about 60% versus 80% or 85%. It's just some numbers that, you know, somebody wrote a paper about and they got enshrined in stone. Within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. Mario Draghi spoke three words and saved the eurozone, or so the narrative goes. In the process, he dragged Europe's monetary policy and its central bank into the 21st century. But fiscal policy has not quite caught up, continuing to stick with the treaty-enshrined debt and deficit limits with varying degrees of fidelity across the continent. Now, though, the European Commission is proposing a new economic governance framework that would give member states greater flexibility on their spending plans and, coincidentally, the Commission a larger role in the continent's economic policy. To discuss this, we spoke with Rebecca Christie, who is a fellow at the think tank Bruegel. Rebecca is also the author of a book on the European stability mechanism and a columnist for Breaking Views. We spoke to her about the Commission proposal, as well as the broader sweep of European economic policy over the last three decades. This conversation became quite wonky quite quickly, and we rattled through a lot of conversations on capital markets unions, uh, deficit targeting, bond spreads, a recent bout of inflation, and even America's first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. If you'd like to hear more from Uncommon Decency, please subscribe and share this with your friends, family, or co-workers. We also encourage you to rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and to send us questions on Twitter, where you can find us at @undecencypod or you can email us at undecencypod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Rebecca, thank you so much uh, for joining us today to talk through um, European fiscal governance and the economic governance framework that the Commission has recently announced. Uh, I was just wondering if you could start by walking us through the history of fiscal governance in the EU, sort of starting with the rules outlined in the Maastricht Treaty as it relates to debt-to-GDP ratios and deficit targeting, uh, and then sort of going through the, the Eurozone sovereign debt crises and how we ended up at this point today. The EU is worried about budgets for a long time because it knows that member states have full control over how they spend things, but the EU as a whole can be on the hook for any mistakes they make. Going back to the Maastricht Treaty, they have tried to put some rules and guardrails around how countries put their budgets together in hopes of keeping everyone on firm footing. The idea is that if one country suffers, it might bring down the rest of the group with it. And we certainly saw that with the Greek crisis and the contagion that followed. At the same time, these rules have become more and more and more complex since they were put in place and now just have turned into these laundry lists of long and detailed requirements that it's this exercise that we go through, the countries nod, and then they do more or less what they were going to do anyway. And the commission more or less goes along with it with various amounts of stern wording. So the idea of revamping the governance rules and the fiscal rules is really a good one. The question then is, is this the right proposal? The new proposal simplifies things, puts a lot more emphasis on negotiation between the commission and the countries, and it also gives the commission a lot of flexibility in deciding whether a country is trying hard enough. This flexibility is the real flashpoint between people who support the proposals and people who think they're going in the wrong direction. 
Why is that you spent so much clout and energy on making such complicated rules? Uh, when Wouldn't it just sort of be simpler to leave it up to each individual member state? Is the contagion risk really that significant? There is a lot of contagion risk, particularly within the euro area. We have a situation where we have a common central bank and we have a common set of bank regulations, which, by the way, is one of the EU's biggest achievements and is a real victory put in place since the euro crisis. Uh, but we don't have common fiscal policy. To the extent that the EU does anything fiscally jointly, it's always temporary. It's always with a lot of caveats. The COVID-19 pandemic led to a big advance, but it's still a small step in the grand scheme of things. So why does it matter? It matters because if Italy, for example, which has huge amounts of government debt, runs into trouble on financial markets, and there's a question about whether it will be able to keep borrowing, then the whole rest of the euro area either has to think about bailing Italy out or has to risk contagion if people think, wow, if Italy, one of the biggest borrowers can't meet its obligations, what does this say about the rest of the euro area? Oh, no. As you can see, it's a confidence issue. Confidence is huge. And the idea behind all of the rules is that if we have rules, markets will be confident that the rules will provide some kind of backbone to keep everybody more or less in line. And even if France or Italy or Germany doesn't follow the rules exactly, just the existence of the rules and the talk about them will keep everybody more or less in balance. So um, those debates have been happening for a very long time. And it's fair to say that a lot of them had been mostly unproductive for the last decade or so. However, there's been a real breakthrough in since COVID. But maybe could you explain, you know, how what are the proximate causes and kind of more long term causes which have allowed the European Commission to announce this new proposal on how the EU should be governed fiscally? You're right that the debate between rigidity and flexibility has been going on forever. And of course, it's never helped by the fact that the big countries, Germany and France, are rarely held accountable to the mm. letter of the law. And then you get in a situation where if you tell Germany, okay, your trade surplus is technically too big, mm. but we're not going to cause a fuss, how can you come down on somebody else? Likewise, if the French don't meet their budget targets in terms of their deficit to GDP or their debt to GDP, France isn't really in that much trouble. It's probably fine. But then what kind of precedence do you set? So how do you juggle setting an example with being practical and keeping things going? The more detailed you get, the longer your list gets, the more it becomes patently impossible for any country to check off every item on that list. People have known this for a long time. Since the COVID pandemic and since the dramatic change in fiscal policy that came from that, because everybody had to start spending to get their economies through. And now with the war in Ukraine, everybody has to keep spending to preserve their energy security for the coming winter and the one after that. So what are you going to do? How are you going to reassure the markets the money's coming from somewhere? Um, you, you, you point out the fact that the rules quite quickly weren't applied because within the first few years of framework, Germany, then France, then a lot of European countries didn't end up respecting them. But did they even have somewhat of a moderating factor? How, is, was it possible to kind of calculate 
um, the effect it had on even even big countries like France or Germany, or is it is it really minimal? The presence of the rules gives people a venue for debating things. In a vacuum, is it a system I would have designed? No. Is it the worst system for making sure that everyone looks at these issues and looks at their conditions a couple times a year? Eh, it's fine. Um, Germany does what Germany is going to do. And Germany also has the strongest economy in the euro area most of the time. And it has the strongest fiscal position most of the time. To the extent that it can lean on its colleagues, um, it finds the rules a fine way to do that because it can do it indirectly through Brussels instead of directly coming down very heavy handedly from Berlin. And so before we move on to the new proposals, I think maybe it would be good to do to say farewell to the what could be the order rules. What currently are the rules in the EU on fiscal governance as we speak? The EU has what's called a European semester process, and they get a bunch of country-specific conditions, and then they have all of these different statuses where you can be in an excessive deficit procedure or you can be about to be in an excessive deficit procedure. Um, it's all very nerdy if you're not actually part of the Brussels bubble. It's intended to trigger this debate and it's intended to remind people to color inside the lines. So the, the commission has announced its new governance framework and there, there are sort of a few top line um, proposals, which I hope you can uh, sort of walk us through. And I, I think the really big one that people have been talking about is a sort of is a greater flexibility when it comes to uh, reducing debt in member state countries uh, over time. So I was just wondering if you could walk us through the, the big policy takeaways and how this commission proposal sort of differs from the status quo. So the broad idea is that it's not practical to just dictate your ratio of debt to GDP and then process it through something called an output gap, which is the difference between theoretically how fast your economy could grow and how your economy is growing. This is how they've fudged the numbers in the past. They come out and they say, okay, your debt to GDP is this, but we take away the temporary factors because of this output gap. So we only judge you on your structural deficit. This leads to people immediately saying, oh, well, if you just change the output gap, my numbers look fine. Huh. And moving away from that, the commission wants to acknowledge that life is complicated. And they also want everyone to accept that debt can be too high, no matter how you fudge the numbers. Huh. And so the idea is that by acknowledging upfront that we're going to be a little more broad brush about it and a little more flexible about it, the countries themselves will accept that the principles are sound and work harder to meet them. The EU is often sort of split around north-south fiscal hawks and fiscal uh, fiscally irresponsible countries, or at least that's how it's sort of painted in the media. Is that same traditional economic divide between sort of Germany's and the Netherlands, who are more hawkish when it comes to budgetary affairs, and then say the economies of Southern Europe, like Spain, Italy, and Portugal, and Greece, does that divide apply as well to the sort of immediate reaction to what the Commission put out? Absolutely. 
the countries that benefit the most from flexibility are the ones that want to really emphasize how useful this will be. They want to reclaim agency. At the same time, the countries that see themselves as guardians of the EU's reputation, never mind that some of these same countries, as we've discussed, the Germans use flexibility, but because they have so much economic clout, they feel with some justification that the rules apply differently to them. But those countries are constantly saying, we want accountability. If you're asking us to take on more risk, we want to have more control over what you're doing. These are the same old debates um, brought forward as part of the new proposal. You know, so whenever we sort of think about the commission, especially under uh, von der Leyen, some of the new proposals that they've rolled out, in part in reaction to COVID, um, it seems that the commission's becoming more and more involved in state affairs um, for its member states. Do you think this is more likely to, do you think this is likely to accelerate integration, especially on the fiscal policy and perhaps closer coordination, or are we going to see more fights over sovereignty like we do in other areas of EU policy? Never waste a good crisis. Each crisis that the euro area has had going back for the last 10 or 15 years has brought a tiny step forward, or in some cases, a bigger step forward on fiscal integration. When Greece was first in trouble, the initial reaction was, let's do nothing. Let's tell the markets nothing. And they were like, oh, we have to tell the markets something. And then they spent a long time debating what is the smallest possible help we can provide to Greece to get the markets off our back, but also set an example that we're not just going to hand out money whenever anybody runs into trouble. What they learned was that trying to ration the amount of aid to the amount of need that tightly was a recipe for failure. If you try to cut it that close with no margin, the first thing the markets are going to do is push you over the edge, even if they might not have otherwise. What we learned from the euro crisis is that your fiscal buffer, and this is a very ballpark rule of thumb, but generally speaking, you want the capacity of your bailout program to be about three times the size of your actual bailout that you need. So for example, in the US, the TARP program was $750 billion. In the end, they spent about a third of that on the banks. They spent a little more on housing and the auto companies, but about a third of that went out. About a third of that came back in a few years later. One of the reasons it worked was because they obviously had enough capacity to deal with the need. The euro area did not originally do that. Their first bailout for Greece was too small. Their second bailout for Greece, closer, but also kind of too small. The bailout that was most successful was the one for Spain. Why? Because they gave Spain a ceiling of 100 billion and Spain spent less than 40. Got that back too. So do you think long-term that the commission and I guess like, you know what we used to call the Troika have learn their lesson because you know we've sort of been seeing a bit of a, a sea change in the way european economics commentators talk about um fiscal policy especially when it comes to corrective spending or sort of counter cyclical spending um to avert downturns you know sort of in the u.s i remember at the start of the biden administration there was this i mean you mentioned output gaps and there was this intense debate over the size of the stimulus package um because of estimates over the output gap and whether they were going to spend enough, whether they'd spent enough under Obama, whether Biden was going to overspend or underspend. Do you think the the European Union now is getting to a point where they're just more comfortable with those larger stimulus packages to support economies that are in trouble? Um, or are we, is it 
or is this really sort of only a short-term reaction to the emergency circumstances of COVID? COVID absolutely made people feel more comfortable spending money because COVID was a clear external threat. Nobody was going to argue that COVID was a thing that Europe had brought on itself. COVID was a thing that hit the entire world. I'm really glad that you brought up stimulus because there is a difference between stimulus and bailout. And there is a difference between investment and you know, economic rescue. And the EU is moving toward investment and toward stimulus in hopes of not needing bailouts and rescues. And that's good. What we saw was the euro area first decided to borrow money using an intergovernmental series of guarantees that was called the EFSF. And that kind of worked, but markets didn't really love it because it was clearly just a collection of people borrowing together. And so the credit rating was very much dependent on how many AAA countries were part of the club at any given time. Then they moved to the ESM. This was also intergovernmental, also dependent on the votes of the biggest member states, but it had its own money. It had some paid in capital, which meant that the markets could count on at least some money sitting there in the bank as opposed to being entirely reliant on guarantees. Once people got used to that, when COVID came around, they realized that they didn't like this intergovernmental way of making decisions. When you do it outside the EU institutions, you also give up the checks and balances that people have gotten used to between the big member states and the smaller member states. So at that point, people were finally ready to bring it into the institutions, even if this also meant they had to take more responsibility for the debt together. It's still a club. It's still not a sovereign borrower. It's still what they call a supranational borrower. So money that the EU borrows on public markets is still a collection of countries and not one joint thing like the United States, for example. Um, but the fact that people have gotten comfortable with these iterative, incremental joining of forces means that now they can go to the markets for a lot more money and just breathe easier that the system is going to work as planned. But is there also um, a a political dimension to that uh, decision to go? Because I remember when when this came came about during COVID, there was a lot of articles um, by a few excited academic, but also you know some some more f f um, sound fiscally uh, people who were talking about the Hamiltonian moment um, and how you know just like uh, Hamilton in the United States created this common debt instrument and that was the one of the glue to make sure the states would stick together. Um, to what extent is that more political consideration a factor in what happened during COVID? It was a great move. It showed a lot of leadership and a lot of willingness to reverse policy on the part of the Germans. The Germans realized that after years of emphasizing, you know, zero budget deficits and fiscal responsibility, that they were going to have to spend to get through this. And they did it. And I give them enormous credit for that. And therefore showing the leadership that allowed other people to follow in their place. It was a Hamiltonian moment in that the EU went from borrowing very small amounts to borrowing substantial sums on capital markets, you know, going from, I don't know, 20 or 30 billion a year to 100 billion plus a year in terms of, of what they're selling in the markets. It was not a Hamiltonian moment in that it's temporary. Markets are hoping it will become permanent. They're trying to encourage the EU to make it permanent. But as long as it's temporary, the EU is going to be paying more to borrow than it would otherwise, and it's going to be lacking that confidence that could get it through the next crisis more easily. 
But the idea also might be for some of its proponents that the moment you have a foot in the door, so to speak, that you've got a mechanism, it's a lot easier to reactivate it, even if it's for temporary, um, for temporary framework once again. That is certainly true. Once you have something in place, you can put it together more easily. And in fact, the model they used for NGEU is something they tried to do for Greece that at the time was seen as way too generous, but they'd already worked out the technical details when it came time to do it at the NGEU. But doing a series of temporary programs is not the same as having something permanent. Sort of moving back to some of the specifics on the, the debt to GDP ratios um so the the, the top line figure yeah. that is in the master treaty is a, is a debt to gdp ratio of 60 percent um and i think the deficit target is sort of three percent um this is something that I, I remember was coming up in it came up in the u.s because every so often um someone in usually on the republican side of congress will introduce a balanced budget amendment um and a lot of some democrats like to talk about the clinton years where the U.S. was running a budgetary surplus each year um, of quite hefty margins, um, but now that's I mean that's sort of been out the window for really since the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. That is for for Europe. Why why is there still such a clinging um, for this sort of tighter fiscal approach and this focus on specific targeting on debts and deficits beyond the sort of the question of uh, credibility when it comes to, to fiscal plans? Yeah, there are a couple of things in play. Um, those very specific numbers date from what was the economic mainstream 20 years ago, and that generally speaking, people don't hold to. There's nothing magic about 60% versus 80% or 85%. It's just some numbers that you know, somebody wrote a paper about and they got enshrined in stone as this way to get confidence in the markets. So people realize now that there's no magic bullet about that particular number. Europe, because of the fractures in its union and because broadly people here are really, I say here I'm in Belgium, people are really risk averse. When you put money away for retirement in Europe, on the continent, typically you put it in an insurance package and not in a capital markets package. There are insurance pension programs out there where you put your money in it, you get a tax break, but you're paying 5% fees on a product that returns 2% return. The math doesn't work, but people like it because the number at the end is technically bigger than the number at the beginning, and it's predictable. They can see it. People here are very risk averse. That's partly culture, it's partly a legacy of the wars, but it's something that Americans have a hard time getting their head around because it, it's just so different from how even the most conservative American politicians tend to look at the world. It sort of reminds me of, um, I think it's in, in Nudge, um, the authors of that were sort of complaining about how uh, pension plans, you know, so many people will buy bonds because it's a it's a lower rate of return compared to equities, but it is at least consistent um, because you know it's a it's a more trusted guarantee, uh, and that's especially true in the exactly yeah. And in Europe, they don't even buy the bonds. In Europe, they buy the insurance, and then the insurance company buys the bonds buys the and bonds. takes a cut. And so the new fiscal rules are moving away from these magic numbers toward what they call a debt sustainability analysis. This is a good thing. Debt sustainability analysis. This is an attempt to say, 
how much does your reputation allow you to keep borrowing on the markets? What's your real market access? Now, there's a debate right now about who's best place to decide. Should the commission have the power to decide if your debt is sustainable? Will they be under political pressure to say it is when it's really not? We need to put numbers on it again. All these debates are still there. But the idea that looking at somebody's credibility is just as important as looking at their specific percentage point ratios, I think that's a step forward. There was sort of one element that that cropped to mind um, when I was sort of reading through these proposals and the reaction to it. So in 2019, Olivia Blanchard, who was the former chief economist of the IMF and had been one of the big, perhaps unfairly to him, had been one of the the characterized as the big austerity voice at the IMF and in global economics. But in 2019, he published a paper in the American Economic Association and then gave a speech at the Peterson Institute here in Washington, D.C., in which he outlined, and I am oversimplifying his argument, it's a, it's a lovely paper that you should read if you're into reading 30-page um, economic analyses, um, in which he outlined how public debt was uh, more sustainable because of, uh, this was back in 2019, it must be stressed, when low interest rates were much lower, um, and that really all you had to do as a government was make sure that your growth rates exceeded the interest rate on the debt, Uh, And if you could do that, then the debt stock would gradually erode over time, provided you can maintain um, that growth rate. Interest rates are obviously rising, especially in the United States, but also in the European Union, um, although the fiscal pictures are slightly different um, in Europe and the United States. But do you think there's a, a risk that with the spikes in inflation, although the causes are slightly different, and with the corresponding rise in interest rates in Europe, that potentially member states might get a bit of cold feet about um, some of the fiscal flexibility and the uh, debt targeting that is being talked about in in circles in Brussels. So Olivier Blanchard has written a paper with my Bruegel colleagues, André Sapir and Jeremy Zettelmeier, about specifically this stuff and how to adjust the proposed fiscal rules so that they don't give the commission quite so much power and they don't leave open quite so much risk that the medium term adjustment path, this is another thing, um, the idea that the debt will come down over time, even if it doesn't come down instantly, that these things can be more credible. Um, Generally speaking, The inflation right now is so situational. It's driven by the war. It's driven by the energy crisis. It's driven by, in the U.S., people's savings, people's ability to keep going despite it all. I personally think it would be a mistake to raise rates too high. I personally think it would be a mistake to tighten up too much. Um, But if the market sentiment really turns and says, absolutely not, the lack of confidence could pull the rug out before the economy has a chance to self-correct. So it is a real risk. And so as we said earlier, politically, the warnings the European Commission would put on excessive deficit or excessive debt were ignored by big countries and small countries as well. So now we've got this new framework. Is this a framework which has more enforcement mechanisms which are more credible? Or is this maybe simply a question of the next few years will be crucial 
in setting a precedent going forward. We have a proposed new framework. Yeah, we don't yeah, have yeah. an actual new framework. And the next few years will be crucial because so much is going on right now. If inflation comes down and the central banks manage to thread the needle and get a, a soft or at least not too crushing landing, then, you know, we'll see what works. And if in two years we're in a really bad fiscal place, that will definitely affect what kind of rules people want to make. Mm -hmm. And so in this new system, what would success look like, so to speak? What would be the... the the key advantages that the new system would have of the, the, the old system um, that would really allow the, the, the new framework to be better adjusted to the difficulties of the, of the EU. The big advantages of the new, the proposal as I see it are the flexibility, the ability for the countries to take a really active role in setting their own targets, because if they design them, they're more likely to meet them. And then the focus on the medium term and not the short term, because it's it's the three to five year horizon where markets and others really want to see that things are getting better and moving in the right direction. So I think all of those are really, really positive steps. There's one... Um... I was reading through the commission proposal, or at least the communication uh, around it, because um, obviously we don't have concrete details. But there's a sort of line in there that talks about Europe's success in reducing current account deficits, but not, but how it hasn't had any success at addressing persistent current account surpluses, which I read, and please correct me if I'm wrong, as a shot across the bow of Germany, which is, of course, an export um, economy that's been running massive surpluses for a long time um, with distorting effects for the European economy and also the global economy uh, to an extent as well. Um, do you think that's something that the commission might sort of look to address in the future to sort of create a more balanced economic picture on the continent? I agree with your analysis at what that was trying to do and who that was aimed at. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Because you can't get Germany on board with any any proposal I mean, that's it's an issue. We know it's an issue. We know that when the Germans export, um, it can eclipse other things going on in the economy. We know academically that a trade surplus can be just as distorting as a trade deficit, that it has to balance out. But in real life, people feel good when they're exporting and they feel weird when they're importing. And that psychological effect means it's going to be hard to get real changes. Another thing that sort of stood out to me was how uh, the commission went sort of at pains to point out that there are certain crises um, that demand a response. And the two ones it, spot, it spotlighted uh, were principally, you know, sort of the fight against climate change and the need for an uh, energy transition. And, you know, the general recognition and understanding of the sort of costs that would entail. Um, and I think some commentators have pointed out that with these new rules and being able to take those into account, um, it would allow for greater planning on, say, a European, a continental energy grid reform proposal uh, to sort of really upgrade the transmission infrastructure in Europe, as well as integrating new uh, technologies. But one other thing in there was, of course, the um, war in Ukraine and the need for additional spending. Germany, at the start of the year, had announced the 100 billion 
euros in defense spending, although that has not materialized, um, which is a whole other topic that we could talk about uh, either today or in the future. Um, but do, do you think really, you know, you know, we're sort of talking about these targeting, but they've listed these potential emergencies and contingencies. Is the commission looking for ways to give countries an excuse not to follow rules so that they can pursue certain investment um, programs? So say like the digitization of the economy or expanding electrification in the economy, which are costly programs, but in the absence of a common debt instrument, um, quite difficult for countries in Europe to implement on a national level without that flexibility. Look, the commission would say it is absolutely not trying to encourage people to break the rules. That is the whole point of having better rules is so that people will follow them. There is a general dance of how do you keep the debt under control and come up with the money that you need to actually pay for stuff. One of the ways to do that is to borrow it on capital markets from private investors and people outside the EU who have money they would like to invest. To do that, you have to join forces. To join forces, you have to be comfortable that everybody who's under the umbrella is managing wisely. So to the extent they can circle in toward that and dip their toes in it with a you know, macro financial assistance borrowing for Ukraine or a repower EU borrowing, the more they can get people used to the idea of going to the markets when there's an emergency. But you mentioned the capital markets. Um, union is that something that you know maybe the commission would try to move forward uh, with to sort of really support some of these twenty first century investments that are so critical for the for the future of the economy. Absolutely. And the commission, in fact, did just unveil some new capital markets union proposals. Now, some of these are aimed at limiting risk, like changing the rules on where derivatives that involve euros can be cleared. But some of them really involve making Europe a better place to invest, like changing the insolvency rules. This is a great step if they can manage to find something that works. Yes. you know, So a common complaint that you hear from well, I suppose it's it's a it's a common refrain from commentators uh, in Europe about how there's an absence of, say, a Google or a Tesla or any of these big marquee American companies um, that sort of come to dominate industries. And I think it's a bit unfair to to Europe in some ways because of the depth of American capital markets. It makes it easier. Um, and you know, we sort of been talk- we've well, myself and Francois and on a common decency in some of our episodes have been talking about. Um, trade policy and industrial policy. Last week, we talked about the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and some of the components on semiconductors um, that were in the CHIPS Act as well. Um, If Europe is going to sort of develop these national champions, it just sort of seems that a lot of these proposals are, although they seem somewhat elementary and common sense, they're quite difficult to, to implement, but they are very necessary if Europe wants to compete globally um, from an economic perspective and sort of develop those national champions. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Interesting choice of national champions, because I would argue that one of the things Europe needs to do is move away from national champions and move toward having global players. You can't just play defense to protect your hometown crowd. You have to have people who are actually doing something that the whole world wants. Financing is a big part. The U.S. has a much better financing climate. You can go to the markets instead of going to your bank. Risk-taking is another one. The U.S. is more comfortable with risk. They're more comfortable starting and starting and failing and failing. It's hard to do that in Europe. 
And finally, you have a real problem with scalability. Europe has a whole lot of innovation and a whole lot of incubator firms for the early stages. But then a company gets to a certain size and it either can't get the financing to get bigger or it doesn't want to hire because the hiring and firing rules don't line up with its needs or it just isn't quite willing to take the bet, you know, because it might not work out to get bigger. And that's one of the big hurdles keeping Europe from getting these global players in the same way that the U.S. is able to. So Rebecca is out. Um, fantastic, very nerdy conversation on fiscal policy in the EU. I absolutely loved it. Um, Julian, what did you make of it? So yeah, this is this is one of my passion projects in life is talking about uh, debt and deficit rules, which normally makes me a very boring person. Yes, um, but today, uh, absolutely one of one of my favorite topics to discuss. And it is a very interesting document to read through the communication because reading between the lines, I mean, you know, politics is everything when it comes to commission proposals because they need the buy-in of the member states. But, you know, the the line in there about reducing persistent current account surpluses, you know, it's aimed at Germany, um, everyone in the continent. And I think sort of Germany... You know, it's it's been getting beaten up a little bit, uh, not just this year, but in the last few years for its economic policies, um, as sort of people turning on the sort of auto liberalism and the insistence on uh, fiscal rectitude um, that Germany has been pushing on other countries, and there's been a sort of movement away from it, and it's in some ways I would say encouraging because I don't think the German economic approach, although it has worked for them, it's not universally applicable, and it's not. Mm. Uh, successful necessarily for Germany in some ways, but that's a whole other episode. So it's very interesting to see the commission spotlighting this policy as something that is in need of correction. And while we, you know, we're not, as Rebecca pointed out, it's not likely to change. And, you know, Germany's likely to pour cold water on a lot of um, these elements. And we saw the initial reaction from Kristen Lindner, the finance minister. Yeah. Um, who was not exactly positive about it. No. Um, but, you know, it's, I, th- I think that's just a very interesting change in the way um, that the EU is talking about economics when it used to be Germany, 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 and their approach Mm-mm. was best. Mm-mm. It's very much changed now to one where we're sort of seeing that greater fiscal flexibility potentially. What's been interesting is Germany taking a, a less of a hawkish stance on, on those matters. You're talking about Linda, and he represents this hawkish um, position in German politics, but it's fair to say that, especially in the waning years of, of, of Merkelism, there's been a real shift. And um, what it also what has meant is we did an episode with um, Raymond Korteweg and Simon Cooper on the Netherlands, um, I think last year. I, I, again, I don't know the episode's uh, number on top of my head, but at some point last year, doing uh, just after the Dutch parliamentary election. And something we talked about, it was quite interesting, is the fact that Germany had kind of moderated stance a little bit really put uh, the Netherlands, you know, under a lot of political pressure to take up a mantle of, you know, hawkishness. Um, it was quite an interesting evolution for the Netherlands, who was quite comfortable letting Germany do the heavy lifting, uh, you know, even the, the British do heavy, heavy lifting before Brexit. And all of a sudden they were 
uh, up front and center, uh, defending you know a more hawkish traditional stance uh, that you'd have associated with with um, with Germany. But something else I want to go back to, and um, when I mean the reason we have a system as it is nowadays is partly because France and Germany agreed to it in the 1990s. And I find this entire kind of political history of our economic system so interesting. So, I, you know, I came up with the quote of, um, of uh, Monsieur Abbe in the patron section. Um, but essentially, essentially um, he says that the 3% deficit rule was something Mitterrand, well, something Mitterrand's advisors came up in 1981 when Mitterrand, want, Mitterrand wanted to be able to say to his ministers, I can't give you more money because we need to stay under 3% deficit. And Monsieur Abbe says, we came up with this number in less than an hour. It was born of the corner of a table without any theoretical reflection. Just extraordinary, um, extraordinary story. And But that 3% number stuck in France. And the reason is now within the EU is because uh, Monsieur Abbe and, and, and his advisors put it in Mitterrand's mind. And so when Mitterrand later in this, so we're talking about May 1981, and now we're fast forwarding to before the Berlin Wall in the early 1990s. And he comes up, he comes up to the Germans and he says, um, we can't, we, we are, first of all, France had a few weeks of hesitation on whether they should support German unification. And so they came, they came to Germany Saying okay, we we will accept, um, we will accept unification, but we want a um, we want the eurozone basically, because they thought it would be a kind of it would be a good way to drown the, the Reichmark, and in the end that didn't really work out. The the, the euro ended up being you know the basically the the the, the son of a Reichsmark, but. As a result, you then needed those those rules to make sure member states wouldn't go spending like crazy and putting the whole thing in jeopardy. And so the three percent number pops up again. Um, and I, it's just a, a, a fabulous story of about you know how how a last minute uh, decision by an advisor ends up uh, uh, smuggling its way to to the most important fiscal conversation in Europe every year. It does make you wonder how many other percentage targets were sort of just made up on a napkin. Yeah, three um, percent NATO, 0.7 percent international aid spending. What what are, what other targets are we are we paying attention to that were just made up by someone at a dinner uh, potentially? Uh, although I shouldn't be uh, too mean on napkins because they've been the inspiration for many an economic policy um, in the United States. Arthur Laffer's curve springs immediately to mind. Yeah, although I'm probably going to get hate comments. Certain people on on Twitter. Um, there's just one other thing I was. There's I a strong laugher gang, you know, who are ready to beat you up whenever you criticise him. So be careful. Yeah, well, I should, well, yeah, laugh the laugher gang versus everyone who hates tax cuts. Um, <laughs> but speaking of tax cuts, um, and this was a, a thought I had while we were we were speaking to Rebecca. Um, the UK got in trouble with the bond markets this year because of its tax cut budget from yeah. Kwasi Kwarteng, the then-Chancellor and former Prime Minister Liz Truss. Giorgia Maloney, Prime Minister of Italy, has promised a similar ex- uh, sweep of tax cuts, mm-hmm. uh, including a flat tax, um, which is music to the ears of fiscal conservatives, not just in Italy, but really across the planet. Um, a lot of people yeah. talk about flat taxes. And that's that's one for sort of a more economics themed podcast than our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just it's one of those moments where you can see 
the conversation happening if Italy were to pass its sweeping tax cuts and the bond market, which is already not exactly mm. thrilled with Italian mm-hmm. at, at the moment. Um, if you're sort of looking, at, I was looking at the spreads on Italian and German bonds, and I was up quite a bit um, over the last few months. Um, you can see the circumstance, the bond market reacts badly, and suddenly the European Commission, um, the European yep. Central Bank, and all these other institutions have to sort of come in as the as the bad cop and tell Italy to fix its rules. And then suddenly all this talk about giving greater flexibility for reducing yep. debt with sort of growth targeting Sense gets thrown message. out the window before it's yep. even the start. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of one of those things that you can imagine happening and sort yeah, of proving the hawks right, not necessarily because they are right in the long term, but because of a, a one country's um, change in policy direction. Yeah, it reminds me when I was uh, uh, when I just joined Eurasia Group, which is a political consultancy firm a few a few years ago. Um, uh, I, I think I joined in, in August 2018, and that was the heart of the incredible fight between the Italian government and Brussels. Yet on one side, uh, Luigi Di Maio of a five-star party and Matteo Salvini of, of Lega, who were, you know, pushing Brussels as far hard as they could. But in the end, obviously, they couldn't... It wasn't only a winning battle against Brussels. It was obviously going to be a battle against against markets. And um, in the end, they, they mostly... Uh, you know, surrendered at the end because they didn't have much of a choice. But it was a very, very tense moment where the spread just went absolutely crazy between German and Italian bonds. And, um, and yeah, it was quite, quite, a, quite a saga to follow. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining me today for this fascinating conversation on economic policy, which I know is not everyone's cup of tea, uh-huh. um, but it's certainly mine. And I know you enjoy talking about these rules as well. Um, and what it means for the future of the block. I am off to go listen to the soundtrack to Hamilton because of all this talk of Hamiltonian uh, moments. Um, I'm sure you have a Christmas party to get to, so I will <laughs> let you go. Thank you so much for joining me today, Francois. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, thanks for all of it. Um, and to all of you, uh, see you all next week. 